From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The United States spends nearly twice as much on health care as other high-income countries, and yet it has poor population health outcomes. Americans suffer from lower life expectancy, higher infant mortality, and higher rates of chronic diseases. And a lot of people point out, accurately, by the way, that one of the other ways the United States is different from countries like South Korea and Australia and Switzerland is that Americans don't have access to universal health care. Ours is a largely privatized system where health insurance is usually tied to a person's work. And for a long time, I thought that was the biggest problem. But then I met Nathan Price and Lee Hood, two scientists who were working at the cutting edge of human wellness. And they pointed out to me that, yeah, it's true that in places like Japan and Singapore and Monaco, life expectancy is now about 85, whereas in the United States, it's about 77. But that difference, about eight years, pales in comparison to the difference between the average life expectancy in any nation and the length of time that we know humans are actually capable of living well into our hundreds. So even though I think there's an important debate to be had about how much we pay for health care, it now seems to me that the much bigger and more important question is whether it's possible to get more people more decades of healthy and happy life. Hood and Price think there's a way to do that, but What mostly private and mostly social systems have in common is that both of those systems are designed to help people once they have a disease. They're not designed to keep them from getting sick in the first place. And now a little bit of important disclosure. The reason I've been having these conversations with these two men is because back in 2019, they asked me to help them out with a book that they were getting ready to write. And I was compensated for that work. But those checks have been written and cashed, and I don't get anything for helping them promote their work. What I do get from the conversation that I'm going to be having today with Nathan Price is the satisfaction of helping spread an idea that has really transformed the way that I think about the future of healthcare across the globe. Nathan Price is the chief scientific officer of Thorne Healthcare and a professor at the Institute for Systems Biology in Washington, where he and Lee Hood co-direct the Hood Price Lab for Systems Biomedicine. And they're the co-authors of the recently published book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. Price studied bioengineering at UC San Diego and chemical engineering at BYU in Utah. That's the same state where he attended high school and where he was named the top scholar in the state of Utah's academic decathlon, taking first in economics, first in mathematics, second in speech, but Nate, only third in science. Why Why were you so bad at science? I know, it's terrible. So embarrassing. <laughs> Welcome I to the show. I went into the wrong career. I went into the wrong <laughs> career, apparently. <laughs> Nate, at at the heart of this book is a pretty simple observation about what modern medicine was actually designed for. The systems that we rely on today were developed in the early 1900s. And there's a big difference in the diseases that were most prevalent back then and the ones that are the biggest killers today, right? You're exactly right. That the way that we think about healthcare is really dominated a lot by 
what were what were the problems at its very foundation and so when we think about modern medicine we really think about that starting in the early 1900s if we look at the top 5 killers early in that century and there's this um you know pretty morbid statistic that we both know which is that you know every third coffin was filled with the body of a child who had died from an infectious disease and so as we really got into this find it and fix it mentality of finding these pathogens and killing them we actually change that right that doesn't happen in our world anymore at least in the in the developed world that's an incredible success but now we've become a little bit a victim of that success because when we moved into what are our current problems, which are really centered around chronic disease, we took that same approach to find, you know, find it and fix it. And so this gets us into this whole notion that we'll, we'll dive into where we need a paradigm shift that for these chronic diseases that doesn't wait until we have the disease, but rather operates much, much earlier to understand health in a deep way and how we amplify that and how we stay away from getting into these uh, abysses of chronic disease in the first place. Well, and chronic diseases are the result of a process of worsening health. And you and Lee Hood talk about this as the wellness to disease transition. The most familiar example is uh, diabetes. So diabetes, you have this in, this spectrum. So in late stage diabetes, you get pretty terrible treatment options. Uh, at, the ex- at the extremes, you lose pain sensitivity. This often leads to people getting into injuries, getting infections, and very gruesomely, it ends up in things like foot amputation. Now, if you look early, there are actually markers that you can monitor for prediabetes, which would be things like losing uh, capacity in your insulin resistance. And with modern technology, you can actually monitor this with something like a continuous glucose monitor, which will let you see for all the different foods you eat, different activities that you engage in, how that affects these response curves of how much of a spike you might get in glucose. So you can just imagine then for something like diabetes, if we're focused on how do we optimize the processes in your body through lifestyle and or other interventions such that you control sugar well, That means you can do very simple things, more fiber in your diet, walk more, don't eat super high glycemic index, processed foods. You know, they're simple things. So when you intervene early, the interventions can be simple and effective, and you stay away from late stage interventions, which can be uh, gruesome and uh, without the ability to really do reversal. And I think this gets to the heart of something that frustrates a lot of people about health and wellness is because... You know, there's no end of advice to eat right and to exercise and sleep well and do this. But what you gentlemen have suggested in your book is that accentuating and maintaining wellness before we get into those disease states, before we get into those transitions and even preventing those transitions to disease is going to be different for different people. So let's just take an example of a biomarker that's very commonly used in medicine, uh, LDL cholesterol. So one thing we asked is in a population of individuals where we were gathering really deep data. So we had, if you have high LDL cholesterol, does it matter what we know about you genetically? And so one of the things that we found was that when we put people on a lifestyle program to try to improve their health, we monitored whether or not LDL cholesterol would drop. And it turned out that for some people it would and some people that it wouldn't, but it turned out you could predict that in advance. And the answer was, 
in their genome sequence. So if there's a gap, if your genome predicts low and you're high, you can move that pretty easily by lifestyle change. However, if you have high cholesterol and your genome predicts it's high, you have a different sort of driver. It's, it's very, very hard to move that down by lifestyle. So that just lets you get at what becomes a completely new category of variable in the healthcare system. Because today we treat people with high cholesterol or low cholesterol exactly the same. You can come up with a personalized plan that tells you where those gaps are, what's the easiest things for you to actually change in your own biology for your own health, and which things will be the hardest. So this is really about getting to know what someone looks like at a molecular level. And I assume it's best to get to know that when someone is in a state of wellness, when they're relatively young, they're not burdened by a bunch of diseases, because that then allows us to keep watch for the earliest signs of these wellness to disease transitions in, in these molecular markers, correct? Absolutely. So you can think about, you know, one of the ones that is the most probably feared of all the diseases is probably Alzheimer's disease. And Alzheimer's, once you start going down a path in late stage Alzheimer's and your neurons are dying, no one knows how to put that back together. But prevention is actually very doable. So for example, one of the big triggers into uh, dementias, uh, such as Alzheimer's, is a lack is a reduction in the ability to oxygenate your brain. And so when you do that, what happens then is that as some of those neurons die, it puts additional stress onto the remaining neurons and you get, end up in this forward feedback loop or this amplifying cycle that then leads to increased neuronal death. Now, as I mentioned, reversing that at a late stage, no one knows how to do it. It's very sci-fi the ways you would think about trying to do that. But exercise, keeping your brain oxygenation higher is a very good way for preventing that falling into this state of dementia. There's a whole bunch of risk factors that are modifiable that are associated with uh, an increased risk of dementia. So uh, uh, vitamin D deficiencies, for example, uh, CRP, high inflammation rates. So these are the kind of things that you can make a difference on in keeping your blood oxygenation high, uh, your vitamin D availability good, your, um, your inflammation low, and you want to start early and understand what your risk profile is and prepare for it so that you don't fall into that condition uh, to the extent possible. So just using this Alzheimer's example, let's say that I have genetic markers that make me more susceptible to Alzheimer's. I know that Alzheimer's is in my family. And then also my doctor notices a drop in my vitamin D or a change in my CRP. That's a really good trigger point to say, okay, exercise has always been important but exercise for the purpose of oxygenating these parts of your brains that, that may be suffering from a reduction in oxygen now as you start to develop the very, very, very early signs, maybe not even Alzheimer's yet or even a diagnosable dementia, but these, these very early signs of this disease can be reversed and at least then the progression presumably slows down. Yes, absolutely. And in fact... We've done these really deep dives uh, over the past few years uh, at Thorne, you know, where I'm um, based now, where we have done 10 million digital twin simulations of 
different patients and how they go through a life trajectory and fall into uh, dementia. And you can actually simulate what interventions of different intensities at different points in time of life will do to that curve, how far out you can push it, how long you can prevent you know, a dementia from, from occurring. And so I do believe that with a different understanding of the causes of Alzheimer's, because there has been this misidentification of causation in Alzheimer's as being from amyloid plaques, but this metabolic basis, uh, we believe is actually much, much stronger. And it does lead you to uh, approaches that if you find out about your genetic risk, you have the APOE4 variant, for example, which, which greatly elevates your risk of Alzheimer's, you can, you can get aware of what are the central processes that drive that pathology to the extent we understand it today. And there are pretty simple steps you can take to lower that risk of disease. And that's a big deal. You just mentioned, Nate, uh, digital twins. And I think this is a really important uh, part of this. It's kind of a mind-blowing idea that we can take a human being and essentially simulate them inside of a computer uh, based on their genome, based on uh, the metabolites that are in their body. And then we can speed up the process of uh, these wellness to disease transitions, and we can look at how interventions work in them. This is cool stuff. And and I gather pretty fun stuff for you to play with as well. Yeah, it's certainly uh, incredibly interesting. So yeah, let me unpack that for uh, uh, people, which is, so a digital twin is kind of what it sounds like. It is a, tries to be as good a representation of your biology in a computer. And so the idea with a digital twin is because we're representing to the extent possible, your genetics, your measurements, your physiology, the idea is that you can then simulate in advance what kind of a benefit or detriment you would get from different kinds of interventions. And if we understand the mechanisms by which those work well enough, then you can incorporate into these simulations uh, aspects of personalization and then drive the uh, recommendations that you would give to someone with some sort of an expectation of how much benefit there would be at the end of at the end of it. Yeah. But this all brings us to big data because what you're talking about here, this modeling of future health trajectories and also this this longitudinal monitoring of someone's uh, you know, molecular characteristics over time, this is going to create huge data sets. And then the challenge is really separating the signal from the noise. And that's a challenge that a lot of people have said, well, that's just too great. There's simply going to be too many false positives and all of those ones and zeros. But you're optimistic in part because of what you believe machine learning is capable of. Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic on this front, in part because of the experience of having applied this over the last several years uh, to how we can deal with those issues. So we get a fair amount of criticism in this space from those that say, okay, it's too many, you know, there'll be too many false positives and you'll act on, uh, you know, you'll get too much medicalization 
as is often brought up. And I think that that misunderstands two things. First, there, there are very significant issues with early stage biomarkers and dealing with false positives. It's a challenge we run into all the time. But here's the two things that I think are missed often. One is that most of those arguments center around the notion that biomarkers are treated by and large individually. So for example, if you're trying to diagnose a cancer, if you have a, you know, if you're just looking at a single biomarker or you're looking at a set of 10 on treating them all as single, yes, there is a, a certain error rate that's associated with those and maybe some would flip up to be positive. But if you're making a, a really deep measurement, you have to see signs of biological changes that are consistent with that cancer. So in other words, if, if one of your biomarkers shows up high, but you don't actually find the other elements of hallmarks that are necessary for that tumor to actually exist and grow and, and become malignant, then you, you're able to correct some of those individual errors because you have more data. So the way I think about this, just from a layman perspective is, you know, if I'm sending you, let's say you are watching a YouTube video and you want to decide, and there's a simple question, am I watching a comedy or a tragedy? If I submit to you, you know, 10 pixels of information, that's not very much to go on. And you might be able to guess if the 10 pixels are dark, it's probably more likely to be a tragedy. If the 10 pixels are light, it's probably more likely to be a comedy, but that's going to be very low signal. You're going to be wrong a lot. But if I send you a huge amount of information as a movie over, you know, and you're able to watch a snippet of it for a couple of minutes, you're going to get that classification right almost 100% of the time. To that end, uh, you and I got to know one another as a result initially of my work with David Sinclair, the Harvard geneticist who's become rather famous for his proclamations that aging can be slowed, stopped, and even reversed. And healthy aging is really central to the way you see the future of medicine. Why, why is aging such an important part of your vision for how healthcare needs to change? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great topic. So aging is the strongest predictor of basically every disease. And in terms of how I think of aging, in terms of it being modifiable or reversible, I think the way to think about this right now is really to have a definition in our minds of what aging is. And the definition that I like the most, and I think is, is probably the most practical benefit, is the definition around what are the odds that you will die in the upcoming year? And if you're, you know, if you're in your early 40s, let's say, you probably have something like a one in a thousand chance. But that number gets bigger and bigger. By the time you're in your 70s, it's more like a one in 10 chance, one in 15 chance. If you're in your 80s, you know, it's lower than that. Like I remember when I was in, when I was in engineering uh, as an undergrad, we had this really interesting lecture that I still remember to this day because it talked about this notion that light bulbs don't age. You know, and when we say light bulbs don't age, what, what we mean is that a light bulb burns out because of a fluctuation in a power grid. And it has nothing to do with the filament. The filament isn't wearing out. And so it's just as likely to happen on day one as it is on day 30,001. So if we talk about it from that standpoint, it's very clear that you can slow the rate of that progress. Now, with that said, the other thing that's very clear is that 
there are bounds on what we are capable of doing now. And the real question that's in front of us as scientists in a society right now that is so compelling is what are the limits of that modifiability? You know, can we reprogram cells such that we can make them younger? Can you interface with your body? Can we, and especially with these new capabilities of AI, which is just, we haven't talked much about it yet, but it's just absolutely mind blowing. So it's, it's really an exciting time, but I, I, I do think, but we exist clearly in that, that middle window right now of, we know these things are modifiable, but today definitely within bounds. So we have this system right now that is focused on treating diseases. Obviously we need to continue to treat diseases, but you want to move to this system. Your call is to move to this system where we reinvent and reimagine healthcare to be centered on maintaining wellness and really stopping diseases, not treating them, but stopping them at the very earliest point of transition. So what are the biggest obstacles between where we are right now and this world that you and Lee Hood have suggested could be a big part of our medical future? The biggest hurdles right now, in part, are really economic because we have to figure out ways to do this such that it's sustainable. And the other element is just that we have so much invested in a giant infrastructure. I mean, it's almost one fifth of GDP in this country, healthcare now, that that infrastructure is totally built around the treatment of disease. That's how the entities that are involved make money. That's how everyone is trained. If you deploy a program into our healthcare system and it's centered on prevention, there's a requirement essentially that you have to, that this program has to save money, right? And on its face, that makes a ton of sense. We've got to deploy a program. It's got to save money, etc. However, if you deploy a new drug or a new therapy, it never has to cost less than zero ever. And so it is in fact, we pay for those things. And if you step back from that, it gives you a very odd uh, level of value because what we're saying in fact is that a year of healthy life is not worth paying anything for. And a year of sick life is worth a fortune. And so, that is, I think, if any of us thought about it in our own lives, exactly backwards. A lot of people have tried to improve healthcare over the years um, in little bits, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this part. I'm going to fix that part. You and Lee Hood, you guys want to change it all together. That's an enormous undertaking. You might live to be 120 and you might still not see this vision become a reality. But, but I do gather also that you're up for the fight. Yeah, so it, it'll, it'll be fun to keep, uh, keep working on this for a long time, but you're exactly right. And I, and I don't want to give you know, listeners the idea that we don't understand kind of the scope of that challenge. And so the question is, okay, if we take this as a North Star that we can get to somewhere that's much better than we are today, what are the practical steps that you could take to move in that direction? I think that there's going to be a whole emerging uh, scientific wellness industry that caters to developing tools and approaches that make this more accessible 
And then the other, I think that is happening is you will start to get more gradual changes, especially as we can get those economic incentives set up properly, such that you can start to move more of the healthcare uh, system in this direction. And so it will be the work of decades, certainly to, to align us, but there are things that you can do right now in your health, you know, and monitor and take action. And that's what we really want to enable people to do is to embrace as much of this as they can, even as we're working on, you know, trying to get more systemic buy-in throughout, you know, our whole healthcare enterprise. That's Nathan Price. He's the chief scientific officer of Thorne Health Tech and a professor at the Institute for Systems Biology in Washington, and the co-author, along with Lee Hood, of the recently published book, The Age of Scientific Wellness, Why the Future of Medicine is Personalized, Predictive, Data-Rich, and In Your Hands. Nathan Price, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. So great to be with you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. So if you're a donor to Utah Public Radio or KCPW in Salt Lake City, we want to thank you. And if you're not, why not? Head over to upr.org and click on the donate link and make sure in the comments you let them know that you're a supporter of this program. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.